Usually, when we think of missions, mission trips, missionaries, we think perhaps of people like Roy and Alita Danforth, who we've supported as a church for a number of years. This couple lives in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They uh, are agriculturalists and a nurse by trade. They literally uh, are ministering to the Fulani people, a tribal nomadic people who have had the same way of life for over a thousand years, um, herding cattle all over and wandering around. Uh, that's one of the pictures that comes into my mind. Or maybe a more modern-ish example would be Bethany Eiblings, a young woman out of our congregation who is ministering among the Muslim population in Egypt. Or even Lindsay, who's going to be a Wycliffe Bible translator who'll be leaving in uh, uh, the, the wintertime to, uh, to translate the Bible that previously hasn't been written down in some oral languages and dialects. We typically think of highly trained, dedicated, self-sacrificial people. Like when I was growing up in church, uh, missionaries were kind of like the special forces, like they were a cut above everybody else, at least in my mind. And I think if you were to ask missionaries, they would probably tell you, you know, we're just like everybody else, we just have a different calling. Um, but that's what I thought of when I was a kid. But just less than two weeks ago, this church sent, I'm a little bit hot, yeah, uh, this church sent 37 people to Panama, and as one of the people on the team, uh, I think we can safely say that none of us felt particularly like rock stars or anything like special forces, except maybe Wayne Youngquist. I mean, you should have seen this dude in action. He's actually been a real missionary before, so anyway, he is a stud. But other than Wayne, um, you know, we took some skilled people, um, absolutely. Everyone had skills to offer, but few of us felt, I think, overly qualified. And a lot of us got put in positions to do types of work that isn't even in our training. Um, like Joe's a teacher, but who knew how good he was with concrete work? Well, now we know. <laughs> and usually when I think, or maybe you too, when we think of the missionary impulse, the call to go forth and to spread the good news of God, we think of Jesus sending out his disciples, sending out the 72 in pairs, or we might think of the Great Commission in the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, to go and make disciples of all nations. We definitely think of like the Apostle Paul who went out and planted churches and evangelized across cultures and political boundaries and religious boundaries and even uh, social and gender boundaries. Those are the types of missionary people and impetus we think of. But this evening, I want us to consider the text that Ryan just read from Genesis. I think the story of Abram is a story that we're, we're going to find that God is the hero, not Abram. And that God has always been a missionary God. And that this missionary God works through people. They don't need to be heroic. They just need to be obedient. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for always taking the initiative in scripture, you take the initiative. In history, you take the initiative. In my life, you've taken the initiative time and time again, reaching out when I was deaf and dumb to you. And I suspect and know the truth that you also took the initiative in these brothers and sisters of mine. Thank you that you take the initiative because you are a God who's on mission to rescue your world. 
But thank you that you do not allow us to just be passive, that you invite us into your story, into your mission, and you give us the great privilege of having meaningful things to do and say, meaningful lives to live. So bless you, Lord. Help us to hear what you have to say to us this evening. And help us to, who maybe feel overqualified, to be humbled a bit today. And those who feel underqualified or disqualified, to feel encouraged today. And may every single one of us leave today knowing how gracious and good you are and what a life you've called us to live. Amen. It's been noted by many, many scholars that Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, covers more history, more millennia than the time period covered from Genesis 12 until the present day. That is a long, long time. And for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, minus the part about being created in God's image, and some of the highlights like Abel and Seth and Enosh and Noah, most of chapter 11 has been person after person, tribe after tribe, nation after nation, rebelling against their creator God. If we can conclude anything from Genesis 1 through 11, we can conclude this, that God is great, that people are really screwed up, and that he's super gracious to keep on rescuing us time and time again. At the end of Genesis 11 and the beginning of Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abram and his family. But make no mistake, the story isn't really about Abram and his family. The story is about the hero. It's about God. Our God is relational. He initiates contact with people. He chooses to enter the fray and to work in and through regular people. The God who became incarnate, which means in the flesh through Jesus, is the God who chooses to work via carne, in the flesh, through people like you and me. So let's take a look at the type of people that God uses. Now you would expect that if God was going to rescue the entire world from all of the screwed upness that it is, he might choose a person whose family like worshipped him, knew him intimately. Um, you, you might think he would choose a person who had lots of children to carry forth his, his promise and to teach them his ways. And you might think he would choose a person who had lots of influence in his, in his culture and in his time so that he could, you know, get the message across from a position of power. Well, Abram was none of those things. First of all, Abram and his family were from a little place called Ur, of the Chaldeans, which sounds like a caveman named it, Ur, right? It's, it, it sounds just like, what is Ur of the Chaldeans? But actually, by the time Abram and his family received the call from God, Ur of the Chaldeans was a thriving, already ancient city. Uh, but maybe more importantly is it was the center of the political, cultural, and religious world. It was one of the centers of worship for the moon god, Shin. On top of that, we learn that Abram is married to Sarai, which in Hebrew means princess. But in Ur of the Chaldeans, they spoke Akkadian. And Sarai is a translation of the word Sharatu, which means queen. And what you need to know is that Sharatu, this queen, was known to be the consort, 
of Shem, the moon god. So Abraham's married to this woman who's named after the consort of the moon god Shem. On top of that, we learn that Abram is married to Sarai, which, um, who is also barren at the same time, meaning, of course, that she cannot have any children. She couldn't produce offspring that would then take care of Abram and Sarai. So here is this couple who are barren, who not only are ignorant of Yahweh, but are worshiping the false god of Shin, the moon god. The narrator is just setting the scene for us. Abram's family is the definition of not blessed in the biblical eye. They worship a false god. We learn that their brother, Abram's brother Haran, died prematurely. Their father, Terah, died in a land away from his home, and Abram's wife is barren. Abram's situation may be summed up in one horribly debilitating word, hopelessness. From a, a secular, ancient, Near Eastern worldview, their situation was hopeless. In reality, their situation is the situation of the human race less left to itself. Enter chapter 12, and with it, God's intervention from above. Enter the gospel or the good news that God saves even and maybe especially those who cannot save themselves, the poor in spirit, the hopeless, guys like me and, sorry, people like you. God initiates contact with Abram. God always initiates. He's the one who reaches us when we are too blind and too stubborn and unable to reach out to him. And he takes this man from a seemingly hopeless life situation and he declares something that doesn't make any sense. He declares blessing and promise over Abram. First, God calls Abram to leave his country and his relative, to leave his father's house. Now, it's difficult for most of us to understand just how much God is asking the world we live in because of modern technology and travel is much smaller than Abram's world. Um, you and I could get a passport and travel around the world in pretty much 24 hours if we do our scheduling right and get the plane figured out. And when we leave Bellingham and go many places in the world, despite differences in language and culture, we're, for the most part, in many places going to be accepted. And if we could contribute to that society uh, and, and find meaningful work, we could eventually own a home somewhere else besides our land and, and have some kind of place in society. But in Abram's day, your city-state was your world. It was your country, your city was your tribe, it was your culture, it was your source of identity, your source of protection. And if you traveled to a foreign land, chances are you could never own property or have any status amongst the locals. It's kind of like if you ever tried to move to Montana today. <laughs> you ain't from around here, are you? Yeah. And everyone knows like, oh, your license plate is, was just issued like 10 years ago. You're not a local yet. Um, so Abram and Sarai are asked to trust that God would come through on his promise. It's a big ask, because if he didn't come through on his promise, they would literally be lost in a foreign land. But in return, God promised Abram that he would make him 
a great nation. Literally, that Abram would produce offspring that would multiply and form a great nation of people and that he would have a great reputation. He was offering to give Abram a legacy. God sees Abram and Sarai's brokenness and barrenness and hopeless situation, and he meets their deepest need with extravagance. He promises to bless Abram and to make his name great. Now, as we've seen, when God comes to Abram, he's anything but blessed. His name is anything but great. In fact, if we go back just one chapter um, where we read the story of the Tower of Babel, does anyone remember their motivation for making that tower? To make their name great in the world. They thought, we're going to build the biggest tower the world's ever seen. We're going to get up on this tower and be closer to our, our uh, foreign gods. And the world will look at us and say, wow, they are great people. They wanted to make their own name great instead of God. But here, God is going to do the work and make Abram's name great. Isn't that amazing? Abram is going to be blessed and have a great name, which means lots of influence in order to be a blessing to other people. And this is where we see God's plan unfolding. Our God is a missionary God. He's on mission to redeem and recreate the world he created in the first place that we broke through sin. He's going to bring hope and life where there's death and despair. So God promises to bless those who bless Abram and to protect him. He, he promises to curse those who curse Abram and his mission. And finally, this is so important, God promises to bless all the nations of the world through Abram and his offspring. And here we see again God's missionary heart, his desire to bless every single person on the face of the earth, not just Jews and not just Christians and not just Americans. What is Abram's response to this incredible call? The narrator wants us to see Abraham's faith. And so we're told that he went forth just as the Lord had spoken. Now, what are some of the implications for you and I? First, this is such good news for me, God is in the habit of using weak people, inexperienced people, unqualified people, to do the extraordinary work of God. Who would have thought that a guy like Abram would be a candidate to father the people who would produce the Savior of the world, Jesus himself? I mean, if you were going to make up a religion and you were going to write a backstory for it, you would pick some person who is, maybe had good character and was wise and strong and always loved the Lord. You wouldn't write some doofus like this who used to worship the moon god and was married to this Sharatu lady, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but this is actually how things usually work, is God takes the nobodies and makes them somebody. And I'm, I'm thankful that I was a nobody when, when God plucked me out of the world I was living in as an enlisted person in the Coast Guard. That, that's important work, what I was doing, but I never dreamed I would be able to proclaim his word in front of people. And it still baffles me every week that I get to do this. He uses nobodies. He plucks us out of where we are, and he invites us to do great things. Look at Abram, this moon-worshipping, married to a moon-worshipping, barren lady 
This guy with no hope, and God breaks into his life to invite him to become part of God's redemptive story. Is it really that surprising at this point? Isn't this who God is? We read about it all the time. This is the God who worked through Jacob the deceiver, Judah who sold his brother into slavery, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the foreigner, David the adulterer and murderer, Jesus the Christ who is tied genetically to this motley group of people. If God can use them, he can use you and he can work through me. Abram didn't have the best lineage, education, experience. He didn't have the right religion. Even his own faith faltered at times. But you see, when God calls us to join his redemptive story, it isn't about our qualifications or even about our faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness. Let me just share you on a little inside secret. God is going to save the world. God is going to rescue The question is, will you and I be a part of it? This Panama mission trip was a bit of a Petri dish, not because a lot of us got sick, but a Petri dish in another sense, maybe I should say a testing ground for this type of theory. I want to invite uh, Jan Morell forward uh, to share a a bit of her experience. But as you uh, um, see our sister coming on up, That thing in her hand, go ahead, uh, Jess. Uh, we named that king Jazzy. And, uh, Jan, I think, it, I think it'd be safe to say that um, you had some question marks, some, some doubts before, right before the trip, to wondering if, hey, do I have anything to offer? Um, I dare you to ask anyone from the team later on today if Jan had anything to offer. But, Jan, I'd love for you to share a few thoughts about your experience um, in Panama. I really, I talked to Chris only before we went home and said, I don't need to be scared of discouragement, but Satan just doesn't want me to go for a very specific reason. And I found out that's exactly what it was. Um, I was so hesitant, and traveling across the world in my condition right now is, is exhausting in itself. But I decided that Jazzy and I were going to make the best of it, and we did. Um, All the kids that went on Panama trip are going to be asking for Jazzy for Christmas (laughs) because they had a lot of fun. But it was amazing what a tool this was with the kids. Um, The help that they gave, just the encouragement that they gave me, and just um, making me part, allowing me to be part of something that I really felt like I couldn't be. But um, while everybody was off being busy and and doing what they needed to do for children or building, um, we had done these handprints with the kids, showing that God is, we are in his hand. And um, some of the kids decided that Jazzy needed one. So Jazzy's in Panama. But um, when we made these, the kids took gems and stones and pieces of glass, tile, and put them in there. And I was talking to, to Jen, And I said, you know, they're really dull. Do you mind if I go shine them up before the kids get home? Or before they take them home, excuse me. So I took my rag and my basin of water and knelt down and just started squirting water on them. And I watched as the the grime and the filth disappeared and how these tiles and these little stones just glistened. And I said, okay, God, you're really funny. That was me. I was so covered in my own stuff 
that I didn't think God could use me. And as I wiped it away, I said, you know, it's just the way we are if we would allow you to remove that layer after layer after layer sometimes what we can do for Jesus. Mm. And it was, it was so encouraging to me to see all these stones come alive. And that's what we do when we let Jesus do what he needs to do with each of us. Mm. Thank you so much, Jan. Yeah. The next people I want to ask to share is a group, and it's um, some of our children. Um, I know the Fraser kids are still in Panama touring around. Some other people couldn't make it. Uh, Benjamin, you can be praying for him. He has pneumonia. Just came down with it last night, so he's not going to be able to share. But I want to invite Sophia and Zoe and Elsa, if she feels like it. Stella, if you feel like coming up. Um, uh, and I can help walk you through it. But this is another group who, you know, a lot of times the world looks at children and says, oh, you're cute, and someday you can contribute. Um, but it's kind of a, a daunting thing to go all the way down to a new country where you don't speak the language, you're in tow, your parents are telling you what to do. And so I just want to ask you guys, um, was there any, anything that made you nervous as you, before you even went on the trip, just how you were going to contribute or um, language barrier or food we were going to eat or what it was going to be like? Um, curious to hear. No? Okay. What do you think, Pia? <laughs> um, I was wondering, like, what we were able to do because, like, we had things picked out we were going to do, but I was wondering, like, what the kids could help with, like, what was the construction going to be like because we were talking about, like, we're going to do it their way, and I didn't know what that was like, so I was wanting to be able to do that, but I didn't know what it was going to be like, so I just tried, and it was really fun. Um, it was kind of fun to play, like, cards with the kids because we would play, like, Spot It or we played, yeah, we played War and that was kind of fun and Torn was trying to play Uno with them or no, like, he was trying to play Go Fish or something and he would ask, like, for... Spanish number, like Uno, um, and that was kind of funny, Good. and also it was fun to do construction. Good. So there were some things that you didn't quite know what to expect. I think it took a lot of courage to come and, and engage in these things. So how did God meet you there? How did he open up opportunities or show you that you could make a contribution that really mattered? What were some ways that surprised you uh, or some things that were um, a pleasant surprise to how you were able to, to contribute and fit in? Zoe, you just shared some great examples of playing some games with the kids. Um, anything else that worked for you? I was surprised that we got so much done that, like, um, like, not only like construction or the sustainable garden, but like how many friends we made. Like we all were really close with like Gretel and um, Selena, yeah. and we just played every day when we saw them. We would go and play, and they were excited to see us. Good. Good. Elsa, how about for you? You can share something that maybe you were nervous about beforehand, or, or something that really surprised you uh, positively after you got there. Uh, anything you'd like to say? Um, 
At first, I was kind of worried about like getting too many bug bites, but yeah. I mean, that didn't really happen too much. Good, good. It's awesome. It's awesome. Just playing with the kids. I also um, there are some pictures up there of um, these guys really working. I wish he was here because Ben Wasserman is. Uh, I think they nicknamed it El Machina. He was just a machine out there. I mean, he was working in this ni like 90 degree, all this humidity. Um, yeah, he cleared all of this stuff, worked right alongside Ryan and some of the other men, Wayne. Uh, all you guys worked really hard, whether it was labor uh, or just working hard on relationships. It's tough across languages, but these guys had a way of uh, um, just making those barriers not matter. And um, it was cool to see you at the end with this pack of friends running around uh, from Panama. So thank you for having courage and uh, being obedient to God's call, or at least to your parents, and then finding out that God was really in charge. Because we didn't know what to expect either. Yeah. yeah. So God takes those of us who feel unqualified sometimes and is able to do some pretty amazing things and uh, I think that sums up Abram's story and you probably have a story like that too. Um, second, Abram was promised blessing so that he and his descendants could be a blessing to others. You see, the New Testament writers see God's promise to Abram all being culminated or fulfilled in Jesus and that is um, the way that God ultimately wants to bless the world is through Abram's seed, his descendants, which lead up to Jesus. Jesus invites the whole world, all who believe, into, redemptive, into that redemptive story. So now, we as the church are called to be a blessing to the nations. Now, of course, that means locally as well as internationally. What does that mean for us? It means that we are part of this same story of God's redemption, that we are to be active players in God's redemptive plan. The good news is that Jesus, in his incarnation, he, he inaugurated God's kingdom, and ever since then, God's kingdom has been breaking in all around us. Jesus ascended and is at the right hand of God. Do you know what that means? I mean, it's a pretty cool display that he went up and... But what it means is that beyond all appearances in the world, that Jesus is actually the king. Even though it seems like world leaders are in control, that corrupt crime bosses and slave traders have the power, that military might decides victories, uh, and where people are divided by uh, racism and political allegiances, even despite those outward appearances, Jesus is king. Amen? The blessing we receive is the truth that Jesus is king, and the faith to live in that reality. That's two things. Knowledge that Jesus is king. Okay, I, I can buy that. But faith that helps me live as though that were true. That's a different thing. And that is the blessing that God gives us as his church. Not just knowledge, but faith to live it out. And that's what allows us to do extraordinary things because we know that in the end, when this life is over, that God's kingdom will come and make all things new, including our bodies and including the environment, including political structures and relationships. Everything will be made new and will work right. Can't wait. That is reason to hope. Hope is the biggest blessing we have because it motivates us to live differently. Hope in Jesus is not, oh good, 
I'm glad you're going to fix this mess. I'm just going to kind of hang out with my friends, and we're going to sing songs and have our hope. Hope means that we can live differently. It means that even though when we do good, it seems like this is not making a difference. Hope says, oh yeah, it is. Hope says that when we do things out of love for Jesus and other people, it will in some way be redeemed in the new world. That means your life actually matters. I saw this in action through Christine Wasserman loud and clear. Put up some pictures of Christine. She would have shared today, uh, but she's taking care of Ben. One of the churches we worked at uh, had uh, Pastor Marcos and Pastora Rosida. Uh, they have a couple of children, and uh, one of them is a quadriplegic woman in her early 20s. She fell, uh, had a fall when she was about eight months old and um, lost the use of her, of her limbs. Before Christine ever got on the scene, by the way, we witnessed the whole community, not just the parents and the siblings, but the whole church community taking such dignified care of this woman. Um, Wherever the conversation would go, into the church building, into the school, out into the street, she was wheeled out, um, talked to. She's completely coherent um, intellectually, but just can't express much. Um, Touched. She was sung to, but what I was amazed by is that here's all of, we we get to Panama, here's all of these people that Christine could be talking to, and you know Christine, she was talking to them, Um, (laughs) but you know, the way our culture works is, hey, I've got a limited amount of time, I'm going to invest in the people who can talk back to me and give me something, some, some response, but Christine would spend time with this woman in the wheelchair and the training that Christine has as a uh, special ed um, teacher, uh, she knew how to massage her arms, and when her hands were gnarled by the end of Christine's massages, her fingers would be relaxed. Uh, Our brother Ryan uh, was singing to her, uh, making her smile. This is the type of investment that even from the first century AD, the church was known for. Before Christianity, These types of people, if they were allowed to live at all, were shunned in a corner. You have to understand this, that the reason we have even hospice care today is because of the Christian movement. Uh, That Trahan himself uh, railed against his own people, the Roman emperor, said these Christians are showing us up. uh, Because while our people are dying of plague and running for their lives, the Christians go in at the peril of their own health to help them. See, hope matters. If there's no hope, then that person's life doesn't matter to us. She can't contribute to society the way we think is important, but that's not what Jesus says. And Christine was able to show um, just this beautiful expression of hope by investing time and love and patience with someone uh, because she knows she matters to Jesus. I'm going to invite Ryan to share an experience that he has as well um, from Panama. Sorry, you have to follow that. It's pretty great. Yeah. (laughs) So I know that uh, when we went down, we were prepared to do um, a lot of serving. We were prepared to build stuff. We were prepared to run programs. One thing I don't know if we were prepared for was how much just waiting around we would have to do. And uh, I know they saw this at La Promesa, at the church where a classroom was being constructed. We found that the Panamanian workers devoted their full attention to 
each step in the process, the step that they were currently working on. And so this would mean that when that step was finished, there would be uh, break time and there would be some planning. And sometimes there would be uh, ordering of supplies for the next stage and some waiting around for those supplies to come. And so there were these uh, periods of, of kind of forced waiting. Um, in my own case at uh, the other church, uh, um, Casa de Pan, uh, one of the main projects we were working on was putting in a garden. And uh, if I was working on a garden here at home, my inclination would be to start early in the morning and to work right through lunch and to keep at it till the job got done. Um, what I found out in Panama is that because of the heat and the humidity and the sunshine, that's just not possible. So like every half hour, um, you would just be completely drenched in sweat um, from your head to the tips of your toes. It looked like you were just got out of a shower with your clothes on. And uh, so you'd be forced to take these 15, 20 minute, maybe 30 minute breaks in the shade and uh, force a bunch of fluids. And I think for, um, for all of us, that kind of forced waiting as Americans, that's just not something we're used to. Um, we're used to having all of our time filled up. And um, when there is downtime, we've usually got our phone there to fill it up uh, for us. But um, what I found was during those forced downtimes, me personally, what, what I saw was I, I saw Kosa. She'd been brought out into the tent where I was getting some shade. And this was one of those periods where she'd been left and, and there was no one around. And so I was just like, well, there's something I can do while I'm resting is I can go sing uh, to Kosa. And that I did during each of these breaks um, each hour. And that was one of the best parts of my trip, one of the most meaningful or memorable parts of the trip for me. And I, I would have completely missed out on that if, um, if I wasn't forced to, to wait and to, to not have anything to do uh, for a little bit uh, on a consistent basis. And it wasn't just me. I saw, uh, for example, at the end of the day when we were waiting for uh, the bus to come pick us up, Chris and Paige um, would run out in the street and play soccer with the neighborhood kids. Paige without shoes and in a skirt, I think. Uh, that didn't slow her down or didn't seem to. Um, I saw Kristen on the last day when we were between activities and there just was a bunch of people waiting around. She pulled out her uh, bag of string and started teaching some local girls how to make friendship bracelets and, uh, and uh, to make connections with them. And so that was really special to see that um, during those times when we might have felt discouraged or felt like we had nothing to do, I saw people who were listening to God's calling and uh, looking for what his plans might be when our plans weren't uh, exactly working out and uh, trusting God that he was going to provide them with um, something to do during those moments. So that was uh, one way I saw God working. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Finally, this story of Abram, um, if it's anything, it's a story of faith, that God called Abram to leave the comfort and safety of Ur and Haran, and to go where? To the land, well, I'll show you when you get there. I mean, would you ever just take your family to, the, you know, I mean, at least we had a ticket to, we know we're going to Panama. Um, literally, Abram goes to the unknown God's promises are not meant to bring a sort of static life and consistent ease. The life God calls us to is one of adventure and one of testing, 
certainly there's areas of, of joy and comfort, and there's times of, of getting on and, and, and pressing through barriers in our life. But this life is full of hope and significance. We've still got to go. Uh, like we did to Panama. And for some, that might be a long-term calling, like it is for Bethany um, and, and Lindsay. But I would argue that in our culture, staying is far more risky. Staying put, uh, staying put in a community these days requires much faith that if we actually obey God, um, it's easier to stand out and to be different in another culture, uh, but to live for Jesus in our own culture is another story. Besides, the U.S. and the Northwest in particular are so malnourished in the gospel that foreign churches have been sending missionaries here for decades. I'm not sure if you knew that, but uh, uh, there are missionaries from Indonesia, from Korea, and they're not just trying to reach like Indonesian Americans and Korean Americans. They're trying to like reach us because we're so impoverished by the gospel. So you really don't have to go somewhere unless God calls you to go somewhere. But what we're all called to do is get out of our self-centeredness, and to obey uh, this call to be a blessing to the world. So whether we stay or go or a bit of both, obedience to Jesus always requires faith. And Paige has something to share with us, a little bit about, about faith and um, her experience in Panama. Oh, you get a mic. Don't be afraid to use it. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> um, going on a mission trip, trip felt impractical, and that's probably, somebody said it's always impractical, but I'm heading into a season of not working for the first time in my life. I'm starting grad school in a month, and I really felt, I kept hearing about Panama. It sounded really awesome. I'm like, I've never taken 10 days off before, so I'm taking off time to work, and I'm not going to make money, blah, blah, blah. Um, I just wanted to say no to Panama and move on. Even though it sounded wonderful, I'm like, it's not smart. It's not wise for me. But I just, every time I tried to just say no, I didn't feel good about it. And I just continued to feel that way and really felt like God was tugging at my heart and I needed to say yes and trust that it was going to work out. Um, just like Abram didn't know it was going to work out. And I don't feel like I did something crazy going to Panama, but saw God provide in generosity of other people, even financially. I joked that, I'm like, do I have something on my head, like, written on my forehead that says, please help me pay for Panama? Because people just kept offering to help me go, which is really, really neat. Um, I had some fears going into it. Not crazy, stifling fears, but I don't know any Spanish. I look at the list of things that we're going to do, and I don't sew, I don't garden, I don't cook, I don't teach, I don't do crafts, I don't do construction. Uh, was there anything else I missed? <laughs> so, but you do pay. I don't do so CPR. Well. I'm not a nurse. I don't do anything <laughs> medical. So I look at that, I'm like, yeah, basically I have no marketable skills. <laughs> so, so why am I going to go? But um, You should be a pastor. I should be a pastor. Um, anyways, I was really encouraged that, I was encouraged by the family of God, and I did get to help Jen do VBS, and we talked about God's family and how that's where we're from, and that's in Panama, and Pastor Chris was mono or mono, so he had a big hand, foam hand over his head, and we had a nose and an eye, and just talked about how we're the family together, and that was so beautiful for me to see. We live, like, 
I'm in, just amazed by the skills and talents and gifts like in this church. Um, and I was really encouraged by myself that I don't have any of those skills, but I can come alongside and like help. I can, somebody can tell me how to do things and I can do them. But I personally was really encouraged that sometimes I say the only thing in my life that I think I'm good at is loving people. And um, another thing that I was afraid going into the trip was just being present because I feel like I'm trying to close my life up here and get ready to move on. And I was like, I just really want to be present. And God gave me so many awesome opportunities to love people and to be present. And those are some of my favorite are just getting down on my knees with a little classroom of kids. And um, I was encouraged that when we're teachable, God just really uses that. And so I learned a couple phrases that I could say and um, learned how to say, God bless you. And so we just got to get on my knees as much as I could do it with little kids and just look them in the eye because we need to hear that. And I love kids. Usually they're the big teenage kids, but little kids too. And just tell them, God bless you. And they look at you and they just have these big eyes and they say, Amen. And then the best part, best part, because this is my, this is my other unmarkable skill, is I love hugs. And these kids love hugs. So they come in and they get hugs and I get to kiss them. And this cute little boy on the last day when we were saying goodbye, he got in line three times. Just <laughs> hugging a kiss, back of the line. Hugging a kiss, like <laughs> just kept coming back. I was like, I'll keep hugging and kissing you. But I was just really encouraged that we all have things to give. And I didn't know what Panama would, be, Panama would be, but it was beautiful to see God at work in another part of the world and to see um, just God's heart for people everywhere and to see the heart of people in this church and um, to just get to be a part of it and to step out and see that God encouraged my heart and encouraged me as being part of this body, but encouraged me in a very different place that we all have something to give and we all we all have something that matters, and we can all love with our work, with our hugs, with our words in so many different ways, and that was really a blessing to see. Thanks, Paige. Sorry for crying. Sorry. I think we all disagree that Paige is good at more than one thing, but if you're only going to be good at one thing, loving people is pretty, pretty awesome. I think we've learned, uh, if we've learned anything from God and his relationship with Abram, it's that he uses the ordinary to accomplish extraordinary things. We've learned that the hope we have in God's goodness, and particularly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, means that we can enter the brokenness of the world knowing that whatever we do in love will matter in the end. I've said it before, that's why I wake up and get out of bed with the spring in my step? If it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. And we've learned faith in God's promises frees us from trying to have to do God's work. He never asked us to do his work. It's his work. But we get to join in on the work he's already doing, and that is a fantastic privilege uh, that you and I are invited into. I'll invite you to a couple different things as we transition now to our time of healing prayer.